Hello again, welcome back to the Luxi podcast, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the intersection of science and luxury. I'm Dr. Lex, PhD, podcast host, and lover of anything sparkly. For our second episode, I turned that love of sparkle into an episode about sequins. Aside from my love of shiny objects, the reason I chose this topic for the second episode is that I've recently been looking through photos of the spring 2022 fashion weeks, and sequins were everywhere. Two standouts for me was um, Dior, who used sequins in their rainbow miniskirts that were an homage to 60s mod, and Chanel. For me, Chanel's use of the sequin has always been masterful. They use them as part of the tweed, adding them to shorts and midi skirts for a modern flair. And this time there was a sheer black dress with a long black vest, all in sequins, that I just thought was brilliant. Now, of course, not just the big fashion houses rely on sequins. I don't know if any of you have watched Amazon's Making the Cut, but the winner of that show has a beautiful animal print neon sequined suit situation that I currently have my eye on. So what is a sequin? Borrowing from a great article, The Short History of Sequins from Threads Magazine, Sequins are small, disc-shaped, shiny beads, and sequins have a center hole, while spangles have a hole near the top, and paillettes are very large and flat sequins. The name is thought to have originated from the Arabic word sika, coin, later becoming in Venice, the Venetian zecchino, which again referenced their coin, and then the name was not used much after those Venetian coins stopped being minted, but was taken up again in France to have its current meaning of shiny beads. In the 19th century, the sequins were made out of shiny metal. And it seems that humanity has always loved some sort of sparkle. There's evidence of gold sequins on clothing as early as 2500 BC from the Indus Valley. Tutankhamun had gold sequins sewn into his royal garments, and as a consequence of his discovery of his tomb in the 1920s, there was a subsequent Egyptomania, and sequins were highly in fashion. And the sequins surged again in the late 1960s and have continued to be popular, and there really wasn't a time since then that they weren't part of fashion. As I mentioned, sequins were originally made from metal. There's a short period in the 1930s where they were made from gelatin, which would melt. Gross. Eventually, polymers were created, and you get the vinyl plastic versions that we see today. So those are the basics of the sequins, and now on to the science. We're going to start with another link to visual processing, since I know you all enjoyed that so much last week. There's something called the sequin illusion in visual processing, and it's akin to a Hermann grid illusion. So the Hermann grid illusion is where you see dots between the spaces of a grid of solid squares. The sequin illusion happens when those solid squares are changed to dotted line squares. So now instead of the dots that you see appearing between the shapes, they appear within the shapes, kind of like a grid of sequins. There was a short and sweet communique in the journal Eye Perception, where two researchers, Ko and Tsang, played with a pattern for the sequin illusion, changing the colors and shapes, and found evidence that this illusion is driven by alternating bright and dark contrast. They used this information to posit that this happens relatively early in the visual pathway prior to the V1 and V4. Remember those from last time? And just to note that you can see this sequin illusion in real life patterns in fabric and wallpapers. 
but now we're going to take a decidedly left turn from visual processing and talk about DNA replication and how sequins link in with that. But in order to get to the sequin part, we have to start at the beginning with how DNA replicates. So I <clears throat> found a really great primer for DNA replication from the Khan Academy, and the link will be in the show notes if you want to see it visually, since that always helps me to when I'm thinking about things like DNA replication, which I have had to think about on and off for my entire career. So DNA is a double-stranded nucleic acid, and so DNA replication is semi-conservative, with each strand of the double helix acting as a template for a new and complementary strand, sort of like a blueprint. And to start out the replication process, there's an enzyme that cleaves the two strands of the DNA at a very specific starting point. This doesn't just happen willy-nilly anywhere. And then there's further specialized proteins that bind to the DNA to keep it from rebinding itself together. And an enzyme called helicase that keeps the process moving by unwinding the DNA as the replication progresses. The main enzymes for DNA replication are called DNA polymerases. And you might be noticing a trend. Usually when you're talking about biochemistry, if you come across a word that ends in ACE, that's indicative that that is an enzyme. So these DNA polymerases attach new nucleotides and create the new strand of the DNA. And when I say nucleotides, I'm talking about adenosine, thymine, cytosine, and guanine, the four building blocks of DNA. And these DNA nucleotides form exclusive relationships. A always binds to T, and C always binds to G. And replication proceeds along, adding A's and T's and C's and G's in both a leading forward and lagging backward direction until the whole piece of DNA has been replicated. Some Additional cool facts about DNA replication. The DNA polymerases, the enzymes that add the nucleotides, proofreads as it goes to minimize errors in the replication. There's a protein called a sliding clamp that holds the polymerase in place as it works. And there are enzymes to make sure that the DNA doesn't get wound up too tightly ahead of the replication area. And so they nick the DNA and relieve the tension and then repair it so there's no errors. So where does this lead us? This leads us to DNA and RNA sequencing. And that is really a simple definition for that, is determining the sequence of a defined piece of genetic material. This was originally done by Frederick Sanger and his team in 1997, and thus was called Sanger sequencing. And this type of sequencing can produce a sequence of around 500 nucleotides or over. So to replicate this DNA replication process in the lab, you take DNA polymerase, a template DNA, a primer, which is a short piece that binds to the template to get it started, and your four DNA nucleotides, A, T, C, and G. And the super special ingredients for sequencing reactions, for Sanger sequencing especially, are dideoxynucleic acids. The dideoxy meaning that there's a lack of a hook to allow a new nucleotide to be added to the chain. Um, in this case, the hook is a hydroxyl group. So these nucleotides act as breaks and terminate the sequencing process when incorporated into the growing DNA strand. In a Sanger reaction, they also contain a fluorescent dye. So each letter has a different color dye associated with it. The mixture is heated and cooled and heated again to keep the process going. And 
So replication proceeds along and the dideoxynucleic acids get incorporated at random points. So you'll end up with fragments of different lengths. And you'll end up with fragments that stop at each nucleotide. So say that your sequence is ATTGC. So you'll end up with fragments that are stopped at the A, the T, the next T, the G, and the C. And you can visualize these different fragments using capillary gel electrophoresis. So the DNA fragments are charged. So if you put them in a gel, and that's exactly what it looks like, it looks like a big piece of jello, and you run an electrical current through that gel, the fragments will migrate to the opposite pole of their charge. And they migrate at different speeds, with the smallest ones going the fastest. You can then take that gel and visualize the fluorescent dye and see the sequence. It can be put together kind of like a puzzle. So you can see, okay, say your A was red and T was blue. You can see, okay, this short sequence ended with an, a red, so that's an A. And this next one, the next shortest ended with blue, so that's T. And then the next largest ended with T. Uh, with blue, so it's another T. So you're starting to build that sequence like a puzzle where the colors and speed indicate the DNA sequence. So that technique was absolutely transformative in science, and it was a technique, Sanger sequencing was the technique that was used for the Human Genome Project. There are some cons to Sanger sequencing. One is that it can take some time to do larger amounts of DNA or whole genomes. The Human Genome Project took years. So scientists developed next generation sequencing, which is also called massively parallel or deep sequencing. And the main feature of next generation sequencing is that you can analyze multiple samples at once in a single run. There is lower sample input, so you need less of your sample, um, higher accuracy, and the ability to, because you can run multiple samples and sequences at once, there's an increased ability to detect variants using this type of sequencing. So next generation sequencing encompasses multiple platforms and methods. But the overarching theme is the ability to sequence many strands of DNA at the same time and share a common method. So the first thing to do for next generation sequencing is to construct a library from the sample. And all that is, is processing all the DNA in the sample into relatively short fragments, and the scientists call that a library. Next is clonal amplification, and all that is, is taking each piece of DNA in the library and amplifying it or making more of it to increase its detectability. The actual sequencing reactions are varied in terms of methods and instruments. The analysis of the data is a bit varied as well, but since they these methods generate such large amounts of data, bioinformatic algorithms are needed for that analysis. And I can personally attest to this one. My PhD research featured RNA sequencing, deep RNA sequencing, and the amount I got of information that came out of that experiment was more than I had ever generated in an experiment before, and I was very glad to have these bioinformatic techniques to be able to analyze that data in a statistically significant and robust way. So we've walked through DNA sequencing, and we've come to the point in the podcast where you're all thinking, well, what does this have to do with sequence? And we're not talking about the shiny kind of sequence for 
this particular part. We're talking about sequencing spikins. So researchers use sequins or sequencing spikins to measure technical biases and act as internal controls throughout the next generation sequencing workflow. Now, human beings are infinitely complex organisms, as are the genetic sequences of a lot of other organisms, for example, plants, surprisingly complex. So this can make analyzing sequencing data really challenging. In addition, errors can be introduced during any of the steps we talked about in the next generation sequencing process because, hey, we're only human. So having standardized controls of a known sequence allows scientists to monitor the progress of the sequencing process and mitigate potential bias or errors. So what we're talking about is short pieces of genetic sequence that are known that are added to the reactions we talked about above to act as internal controls. And scientists call these sequence. So let's take a real world example. So there's a lot of work done to sequence environmental samples to look for microbial communities. And this is the preferred method of discovering microbial biodiversity since taking that soil sample or water sample back to the lab and putting it on a petri dish and putting it in an incubator does not yield a lot of microbes. And certainly not all or even most of the microbes living in any given samples. So next generation sequencing is used to discover new microbes in oceans, soils, etc. Either you know to look for beneficial microbes such as microbes that can degrade various pollutants or to look for potential pathogens. And this search for microbial genomes in samples is, is known as metagenomics. So the size and complexity of the genomes in any given sample can make it difficult to accurately identify and quantify microbial species. And as we just discussed, technical biases can be introduced into the process because humans. So a group led by Hardwick designed 86 synthetic artificial DNA sequences, or sequins, to act as internal controls for environmental metagenomic sequencing. The research team took a diverse sampling of finished microbial genomes, all of which are saved in a database accessible online. And these microbial genomes encompassed a wide range of microbial types and were isolated from a diverse range of environments. The research team wanted to cover as many possible genomic scenarios as possible. The design sequences were synthesized and put through experiment validation and then used in a real-world metagenomic experiment. So they spiked the sequence into salt marsh samples collected from a creek in Sinise Olympic Park that was part of a regeneration effort. And they compared the microbial metagenomics in the regenerated salt marsh to a natural salt marsh. And they found that the design sequence had good performance indicators and there was an additional benefit of using the sequence to normalize between samples. These sequences can also be used as internal controls for research in clinical testing, looking for things like a particular microbe in your intestinal microbiome. And the researchers made the sequence, the associated data sets, the protocols, and the software all freely available on the website, www.sequin.xyz, if anyone wants to go check that out. And I think this is really important to highlight because part of science is understanding, recognizing, and mitigating any potential bias in your research, either personal, technical, or otherwise. 
Good scientists know that they cannot be perfectly objective and so use analytical methods or technical methods to reduce or deal with bias and confounding to ensure what they find is accurate. So I really enjoyed this little link between shiny sequins and genomic sequins. So that was some heavy genetic science we just navigated through. Uh, congratulations, you made it. And without all of the waiting to set up the reactions, making sure you don't contaminate the samples, waiting for the sequencing, running the analysis, etc., you now get to say you know about genomic sequence. As a reward, here's a piece of research on the lighter side. While I was getting my PhD, I was introduced to the world of ballet dance, and I immediately loved its body-positive culture, the music, the dance, and definitely the costumes. So many sequins. In research published in the Journal of Women in Aging, Angela Mo conducted qualitative interviews with older women who ballet dance and found that they not only regained mobility through the dance, but also reclaimed social space and social support and redefined their relationships with their bodies. So just a little feel-good tidbit that involves sequins and women owning the space that they should. So to review some key terms that we learned in this episode, uh, sequencing is determining the sequence of a defined piece of genetic material, either RNA or DNA. Sanger sequencing is one method of sequencing one sequence at a time. Next generation sequencing is sequencing of multiple sequences at a time. Nucleotides are the building blocks of genetic material for DNA, that's A, T, G, and C. Metagenomics is the study of collective sequences of the microbes in an environmental sample, and sequence are short pieces of known genetic material that are spiked into a next-generation sequencing reaction to act as an internal control against technical error. I hope you enjoyed our little foray into all things sparkly and shiny and genetic. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lux Sci. A very special thank you to my audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. If you have a correction, comment, or praise, you can reach me at drlex at luxsci.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at luxsci.pod, and our website is luxsci.podcastpage.io. If you like us, please subscribe. If you really like us, leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll see you again in two weeks.